Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. No power Welcome to a public affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. Every 26 seconds, a student loan borrower defaults on their loan in the United States, according to the Student Borrower Protection Center. 43 million people collectively owe a mind-boggling $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, much of it to the federal government. To address this, on August 24, 2022, President Biden announced a plan to forgive roughly $430 billion in federal student loan debt. This plan would have helped more than one out of every 10 Wisconsinites who carry student loan debt. But 10 days ago, the U.S. Supreme Court struck down the Biden plan. This is the culmination of legal challenges predicted as soon as the Biden plan came out. Here's UW-Madison education professor Nicholas Hillman explaining the right-wing challenge to student loan debt relief on a public affair September 5th, 2022. The authority that the Secretary of Education is using to cancel student loan debt comes from something that was passed in Congress after the September 11th attacks in in 2001 and 2003 got reauthorized. It's called the HEROES Act, and it allows the Secretary of Education to modify or waive, that's the language, modify or waive, um, federal student aid aid programs um, in cases of national emergencies. And so this is sort of um, the thing that we're going to see moving forward is whether this um, HEROES Act authorization is um, constitutional. So a lot of conservatives on the right are saying that was not what this HEROES Act was designed to do. In fact, there are some conservatives who were trying to prevent cancellation in the very first place. And so I do think we're going to see some uh, legal scrutiny uh, and maybe even some lawsuits coming down the pike on people who feel like they've been harmed if they have standing, if they can prove that they've been harmed by this decision. They will come out of the woodworks. Legal challenges did, in fact, emerge, resulting in the June 30th Supreme Court decision. This ruling means people who are counting on debt relief are now facing the resumption of student loan interest accrual and payments this fall after a three-year pause due to the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's show, we're going to find out more about the Supreme Court decision and how it affects millions of people who have borrowed money to go to college. I'm joined by two guests today. Kat Welbeck is Director of Advocacy at the Student Borrower Protection Center, a nonprofit organization focused on alleviating the burden of student debt for millions of Americans. Welcome to A Public Affair, Kat. Thanks so much, Douglas. I'm so happy to be here. We're glad to have you. And we also have with us Benjamin Lee, Associate Counsel at Ascendium Education in Madison, which works to remove student barriers to higher education and workforce training. Welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me, Douglas. Appreciate it. Yeah, we're glad to have you with us as well, Ben. And welcome, listeners. If you have a question for my guests about the Supreme Court ruling or want to share a story about how student loan debt has impacted your life, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear your story. Again, that number is 608 256 2001 extension 9 we're talking about student loans 
the recent Supreme Court decision about the Biden plan to forgive some student debt and the effect that student loans have on individuals and our society as a whole. To get started today, we're going to dig into that Supreme Court decision first of all. And we have an expert with us here today. Kat, we're going to start with you. Give us a summary of the case the U.S. Supreme Court decided on. Who brought it and what were the arguments? Yeah, for sure, Douglas. And I think both that context that both you and Nick provided at the opening really leads us right here. So again, as you mentioned, just so a week and a half ago, we got this decision that denied critical relief to 40 million people, 40 plus million people across this country. And what we really saw was um, these, this actually decision was hinged on two separate cases. And so, as you mentioned, shortly after the president announced his very critical student debt relief plan last August, we saw a lot of conservative attacks on student debt cancellation. And from that, we got two cases, one case coming out of the Fifth Circuit, a case coming out of Texas, about two um, student loan borrowers, actually, who were not eligible for the full amount of relief. And so they sued saying, you know, there was an injury to us because the president president didn't use um, the Administrative Procedures Act so we can provide notice and comment to say we should have gotten relief in this way. And so they brought this suit and it made its way up to the Supreme Court. And then there was a separate suit brought in the Eighth Circuit um, based in six separate states where six attorney generals sued on behalf of student loan servicer Mohila saying there would be injury to their states if there was debt cancellation. And so when these courts, when the court heard these oral arguments and they um, issued their decisions last week. The first case coming out of Texas with the two student loan borrowers who said no one should get relief because we didn't get to make comments on this relief plan. The Supreme Court said there's no standing, there's no personal injury here, so you don't have a right to bring the case. In the second case, unfortunately, what we saw is the Supreme Court ruled with these state officials saying, you know, at least Missouri, who was one party to the suit, could bring this case because they had standing, because Mohila is based in Missouri. So they said that one chain allowed them standing and was able to say that then looking at the merits of the case, as you mentioned, Douglas, that and, and as Nick mentioned in his comments that the president couldn't use this emergency authority to cancel student loan debt. So where does that leave us now, right? I know people have a lot of questions. So one, two things. One thing that's really important to know is I know we talked about the majority ruling, which struck down this plan, but one really important note and what we saw from the dissenting judge, justices, so there's justices who said, you know, this actually isn't right. They actually said, you know, the Texas case, those two borrowers actually didn't have standing. But you know what? These states don't have standing to believe to bring to bring a case either because there was no real injury to them. So they shouldn't even be able to hear the case in the first place. So I think that's one thing that's really important to note. But that Friday, we also heard from the president. He said, you know, the Supreme Court ruled very narrowly and said the president couldn't use HEROES Act authority. So what we're actually going to see is the president is going to actually use authority from the Higher Education Act to bring a notice and comment rulemaking, which we can talk about a little bit more if people want to know the details, to still bring about this debt relief plan. So he said, you know what, we can't do it this way, but we're going to try to get through it through another pathway. That's really helpful, Kat. Thank you. Um, and thanks for laying out... Uh the two different positions that came out of the ruling. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your organization's position on the SCOTUS decision before we get into those alternatives that Biden laid out? I definitely do want to talk about those in detail. 
No, certainly. And I think our name gives away, <laughs> and as you said in our title, we're an advocacy organization. So obviously we were deeply disappointed by this, this standing because we really saw the court, you know, rule against what we saw was a clear standard of jurisprudence. If you don't have standing, if you can't prove an injury, then you can't bring a claim. But what we really saw is, you know, the justices, um, the majority of justices ruling in favor of these, of these, um, of these, the states, in, in this case specifically Missouri, and really kind of going against what was seen to be the very clear letter of the law. Um, and so, but one thing we are, we're really glad we've been really advocating and pushing for, you know, no matter what, the president continues to use all the tools in his toolbox to make sure that this plane gets over the finish line. And so part of that is now using this, this new authority um, and as he goes to this rulemaking, but one thing we really want to emphasize is how quickly he moves. And then we're going to talk a little bit about return to repayment. A lot of people are feeling anxiety, stress around this moment. And so we really think it's important, yes, for the president to uphold his promise, to use a new authority, but to also do that swiftly so that people can see this relief immediately. Great. So let's turn to you now, Benjamin, uh, and pick up on where Kat just left off there with this anxiety about return to repayment. Um, what does this decision from the Supreme Court mean for borrowers right now at this moment? Yeah, so for a lot of borrowers that might have been thinking that they would have ten or twenty thousand uh, dollars forgiven, they now won't, which means that that's ten or twenty thousand dollars at least that'll be going into repayment. And we know interest is going to start running um, September first, and that payments will start being due sometime in October. That's kind of the extent of the information we have right now. Part of President Biden's announcement, was that there's going to be a year-long sort of on-ramp for repayment, which is essentially a hold harmless. You won't be able to go delinquent. You won't be able to default. You will not be negatively credit reporting if you are a borrower of a loan that's held by the Department of Education. Um, so that's some really good positive news for borrowers in light of what for many is obviously a, a, a pretty devastating decision from the Supreme Court. And continue to lay out uh, what benefits our borrowers still entitled to as they face this restart. You mentioned the the slowdown. Um, anything else you want to bring in? Yeah. So there's this administration has been doing a, pretty much everything that they think that is possible to sort of be pro borrower. And obviously they're running into constraints from the Supreme Court, um, from Congress. Um, but they're really trying to pull multiple levers at the same time to get borrowers all sorts of different kinds of benefits. And so there's a couple things that, you know, folks should be on top of. Um, a big one is that there is a new income driven repayment plan, which is set. Parts of it are set for implementation as soon as the end of this month. Um, it goes by two names. Currently, it is both the repay plan, which already exists, but also save. So those are the two fun acronyms that people can use interchangeably. And it is by far the most borrower-friendly IDR plan available. And so for folks that are have, you know, thinking about getting back into repayment, you know, there's a couple of things that everyone should be doing. One is understand what kind of loans you have. You can go on to studentaid.gov, create a login if you don't have one. It'll tell you exactly what types of loans you have and who your servicer is for each of those loans. You should make sure that your contact information is up to date with that servicer so that they can reach you with important information about the restart, payments being due, all of that. I would also advocate for folks to check out um, Federal Student Aid or FSAs. I'm going to try not to acronym uh, too much uh, on this call or on the show. Um, use the, the loan simulator to see which repayment plans you qualify for 
and what payments would be under each of those repayment plans. It's a really useful tool for modeling out how repayment might look for you. And then last but definitely not least, consider apl applying for an IDR plan, specifically repay if you qualify. It is a very borrower-friendly plan. Tell us uh, again what IDR stands for, Benjamin. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that promise lasted like a whole three uh, seconds. Okay. <laughs> um, Income-driven repayment. Okay. Uh, so an IDR plan is, in a nutshell, what? It's based on your family size and income. The okay. idea being that th that payment amount should be ideally affordable. We know it isn't always, but under this new plan, it'll be more affordable than it's ever been before. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and today we're talking about student loan debt and the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision against the Biden administration debt relief plan. If you have a question for my guests about the Supreme Court ruling or want to share how student loan debt has impacted your life, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd love to hear your story. I'm talking today with Kat Welbeck from Student Borrower Protection Center and Benjamin Lee, who's Associate Counsel at Ascendium Education in Madison, who are giving us the lay of the land for student loan borrowers or potential student loan borrowers in the aftermath of this recent Supreme Court decision. I'm going to turn back to you now, Kat, and you previewed for us this more long-term alternative that the Biden administration is looking at for bringing uh, debt relief to Americans who borrowed money to pay for college. Tell us a little bit more about that, how the Biden administration is exploring a new uh, legal avenue for providing debt relief. So President Biden is going to use the Higher Education Act to actually um, do a negotiated rulemaking to implement the the debt relief plan, we're still we still don't fully know the contours. We imagine that it would be similar to the plan that he announced last August, but the idea is to open a formal rulemaking process, and so um, to make sure bringing different stakeholders to the table to talk about um, the the program and 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 this process again might take you know take months. We're trying to we still don't exactly know the exact timeline, but the point is he's trying to get this process started immediately. One thing that I real, will add is one thing that's interesting about the negotiated rulemaking process is that, you know, the president, the, the Department of Education opens up a period of comment comments. So actually student loan borrowers can go to the federal register and submit comments to talk about how important this plan is. And one thing that we've seen, and I think something that's so important when Benjamin was talking about entering repayment and, you know, talking about interest starting to recruit, talking about, you know, this really having um, real real effects on people's people's pocketbooks. The whole point about, you know, there might be a more affordable payment option, but many people still can't afford that. And so it's really important for a lot of people who feel the stress, the anxiety of this moment, and really sometimes that feeling of helplessness and, and not seeing this progress move forward is also feeling like they can be engaged in this process. And so as we get the link to the Federal Register opening and comments, Douglas will be sure to share that with you. So if, if borrowers are interested in, in telling their stories, uplifting their experiences, talking about how critical that that $10,000, that $20,000 was going to be for them and really life-changing in the sense of their, them being able to access you know, ec economic mobility. And so that is one thing I want to lift up is that there is an opportunity for people to lift their voices and talk about how important this change is to them. And Kat, to follow up, what do you see and your organization see as the promises and pitfalls of these proposals, these alternatives that the Biden administration has come up with sort of on the fly? Obviously, they've been planning for this, but, you know, to the rest of us, it seems like, OK, now they're suddenly pivoting. What what are the advantages and disadvantages here? 
I mean, one of the advantages, I think, is the first point is that the president is really trying to stick to this commitment of canceling the student debt. And so I think that's the first thing is that, you know, we've been pushing all these months, even while, you know, we are waiting on oral arguments to be heard, waiting on this decision, just saying no matter what, like there are other authorities that the president has, let's make sure that he uses them. And so I think one thing that's really important is seeing the same day that the decision came down, he said, okay, but we're ready for another plan and we're moving forward. And so I think that's something really important for borrowers to know. And then two, what's one pitfall? It just takes a little bit longer. So initially, you know, we know that when the applications were shut down last fall, um, more than 26 million people had applied, 16 million applications have been approved. So, you know, so many millions of people were already on the cusp of, of relief. And we think about getting, you know, 26 million out of 43 million people to do something in a, in a very quick, timely fashion. I think it really points to how important and how critical this program was to so many people. So I do understand, you know, people's frustrations and worries. And one of the pitfalls about, you know, rulemaking is that that process takes a little bit longer than people, you know, having already expected to see those balances go down before they return to repayment. So I think that is one thing. And so really great that Benjamin was offering, you know, advice and talking about what steps borrowers should take, because, you know, for many people last August, they didn't think they would be here and in, in, in going back into repayment. Yeah, this happened quite fast, right? Really, uh, given the way <laughs> that government and and the judicial system sometimes take years to to reach these kinds of decisions, this happened quite fast. And as you said, twenty six million people thought, in some sense, oh, I'm going to have some more money in my pocketbook very soon than I did before. And in fact, now it's the opposite, right? Um, and then, as you said, frustration coming out of going through this process that came out last year to get the debt relief, and then having nothing come of it. Well, Ben, that brings uh, me back to you. And as as I listen to you both talk about the intricacies of this, you know, my head is even spinning a little bit with all the various uh, possibilities for providing relief to people. What are the very real obstacles for navigating the student loan process and the repayment process for borrowers? How do people both get into trouble in this process and how can this be helped? So I don't think this show is long enough for us <laughs> to get cover all of them, but I'll focus on a couple, right? So one particularly sort of uh, devastating uh, fact is that the less that someone owes, the more likely they are to default. Mm -hmm. And we see this um, time and time again, and it's, a lot of times it's borrowers who are non-completers. They haven't gotten their accreditation or their degree. They maybe attended for a small period of time, didn't really feel like they got anything out of it or didn't get anything out of it, and are dis sort of disconnected from their debt, um, tends to lead towards a default. Um, obviously, a ten or $20,000 uh, immediate reduction would have cured all of those, lo those loans would be gone, right? So... Um, that is one sort of uh, known pitfall, right, is for borrowers that don't complete, don't take out a lot, aren't necessarily connected to their school, don't feel like they got any benefit. They tend to sort of be more likely to default. Um, as you can probably tell from the number of acronyms I've accidentally already dropped on this call, the system is also just inherently confusing, both in terms of terminology and all the players involved, right? Um, borrowers are confused about how many different loans they have, who holds them, what the benefits are, what they qualify for. Um, 16 million borrowers have had their loans transferred between holders during the pandemic. An additional almost 6 million borrowers haven't even picked a repayment plan because they came out of school sometime during the pandemic. 
So that's a lot of borrowers that don't really have any sort of tether or connection to repayment. They, they might not know who their servicer is um, or they haven't had to ever repay their loan so far. So that's another uh, pitfall as we you know, head towards repayment again. Um, are those borrowers going to land okay? I'm going to jump in here for just a second. Tell us a little bit more about how that happened um, during the pandemic. I, I hadn't heard that part of the story yet before. Yeah, so part of it is servicers exiting the direct loan program. And so when a servicer leaves, those loans have to go to another servicer. Um, part of it is Mohila becoming the public service loan forgiveness servicer for the Department of Education. That's a program for borrowers that work for a qualifying employer, which is a government or nonprofit organization for 10 years. They can have their remaining debt forgiven after 10 years of qualifying employment and qualifying payments. It used to be Fed Loans or FIA was the PSLF, Public Service Loan Forgiveness Servicer. That all transferred to Mohila, which you also know from the case that Kat was talking about. So lots of movement in the student loan space means borrowers, loans get shuffled around and maybe they don't know exactly where they are or who they should be contacting. And this might be a, a very big question, but I'm kind of left wondering, why are there so many middlemen, so to speak? Why is the system so complicated and who's profiting from this very uh complex system um either one of you maybe want to jump in with that big I'd say question. that's probably more cats okay <laughs> and i was gonna say maybe benjamin because what i'm gonna say <laughs> that's a great question douglas why is that <laughs> i mean it's this you know this is not going to be an answer to your question but it's the same reason like why do we have interest on federal student loans like why are we throwing 43 million people back into repayment? That's a really great question. <laughs> um, and so again, Benjamin may have had a more like appropriate answer, but I think um, to answer your question, I think it really goes back to how deeply broken our student finance system is. I really love something that Benjamin said and like going through like, again, you know, do we have enough time on this program to go through all the problems? Absolutely not. Do we like, we could write an entire like dissertation on the, the, the numerous problems with this, but I think, one thing to add to what Benjamin was saying is, again, I do this every single day and I, it's still deeply confusing to me, like even going through. And so understanding how deeply complex this system is to navigate for individual borrowers and really, Benjamin, I really love, appreciate the call out, both not only to, to people who tend to have technically what are considered lower balances, but are, are on the higher level of like student borrower distress, but then too, like really thinking about the experience of so many student loan borrowers who you know, have literally never made a student loan payment and are going to have to like figure out how to navigate this system in a matter of months. But going back to why is this flawed? Because we have a deeply flawed debt finance higher education system. And as long as we do that, like we know that we're going to have borrower distress. And so Douglas, I don't know if that answered your question, Absolutely. but I think you Absolutely. <laughs> You're really, we're talking about a system that is, is flawed, right? It's not just one particular policy, but the whole way the whole thing is set up. Benjamin, would you like to add anything to what Kat said? Um, no, I think she, she did a really good job and, you know, it's, it's very tough too, because we know that, uh, federal student aid or FSA who runs the student loan program, Congress flat funded them this year, which was a not subtle message that Congress was overall not wild about some of the things that FSA was doing and how it was conducting itself. So they have, you know, in real terms, they have less money now than they did in the last budgetary cycle. And yet they have to do all this, right? They have to return the borrower's repayment, do some of these other benefits, some of which we haven't even had a chance to talk about yet uh, on the show. And that's 
going to be tough. Of course, that's going to fall somewhat on borrowers, right? Call times are going to be longer. Um, there's just not going to be the level of like responsiveness and interactivity that I think anyone involved wants, servicers included. There's just not the people and the money to do it. So FSA really um, is doing the best they can, but again, limited resources. And yet the federal government and lots of private loan providers are making lots of interest money, presumably, from the system, right? But you're saying they're, they're not set up, they don't, they're not well-resourced enough to service the loans. Well, remember, there hasn't actually been any interest running during the pandemic right. for the okay. vast majority of loans. And for servicers and other sort of middlemen, I don't really think they make their money from um, interest necessarily. It's more about their contracts with the Department of Education. And those contracts usually pay them more, the better borrowers' outcomes are. Um, it wasn't always that way, but that's how the contracts are currently constructed, or that's how they've tried to construct them. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Benjamin Lee from Ascendium Education in Madison and Kat Welbeck, Director of Advocacy at the Student Borrower Protection Center. We're talking about student loan debt and the recent U.S. Supreme Court decision against the Biden administration debt relief plan. If you have a question for my guests about the Supreme Court ruling or want to share how student loan debt has impacted your life, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. We'd really love to hear from you out there, hear your stories about the way student loan debt impacts your life. Uh, Benjamin, you just said there were a few uh, issues we hadn't gotten to yet. I'm going to just turn it back to you to go ahead and, and lay that out for us, and then we'll uh, talk some more big picture. Yeah, so there's one really good benefit available that every borrower should be aware of, and most borrowers don't have to do anything to get it. And this is a pandemic uh, benefit. Um, the department is currently calling it the Public Service Loan Forgiveness and Income Driven Repayment Ad Account Adjustment. So PSLF plus IDR account adjustment. And essentially what the department's doing is giving borrowers a ton more credit towards forgiveness under both of those programs. So time in deferment, time in forbearance, um, time in repayment on a loan before you consolidated it, all these things that normally would not count towards forgiveness will count. And it's going on behind the scenes, which is frustrating. You can go on Reddit and there's hundreds of borrowers checking in with each other wondering if anyone's gotten the account adjustment yet. And the answer so far, best that I can tell is no. Um, for borrowers that have these older loans that are not held by the Department of, Department of Education, which include FEL loans, Federal Family Education loans, or Perkins loans, which were loans held by schools, they need to consolidate into the direct loan program, that's the department's program, by the end of this calendar year wow. to get those benefits. And Douglas, I'm sorry that I'm laying all this on just going right at it without any sort of background and lots of new terms, but it is what it is. We only got an hour. No, I, I, my expression is just, I can't believe if, if I were in that situation, suddenly out of nowhere, I have to, you know, find my way into the federal system. I, I'm imagining, you know, how difficult this is going to be for folks. Yeah, absolutely. And then one other benefit while I'm just ranting um, that I definitely want to talk about is for borrowers in default. It's called Fresh Start. It is the easiest and best chance borrowers will ever have to get out of default. You essentially only have to send an email, raise your hand, make a phone call, and you can find more about it on studentaid.gov. Um, but you can get out of default without making any payments, without really doing much of anything other than saying, I do not want to be in default any longer. 
the department will take you out of default and place you with a servicer and you'll have access to all these repayment plans, including the new IDR, Income Driven Repayment Plan, that we talked about previous, pay or repay, aka save, um, public service loan forgiveness, all sorts of things. So um, if you're in default, uh, rather than be discouraged by the Supreme Court's decision and sort of checking out, um, it's, we, we would want your response to almost be the opposite. Determination to understand your loans, know where they are, and take control of them. And Fresh Start is a great way for borrowers in default to start doing that. And will that Fresh Start possibility be indefinite, or is there a time period for that? Great question. Um, it's a year from when the payment pause ends, so it should last for a, a whole year starting in September. Okay. Well, um, Kat, before we turn towards bigger picture here, was there anything you'd like to add to what Benjamin just said about the, the lay of the land right now? I just wanted to give a bravo to Benjamin, one, for going through all the acronyms, and then two, for laying out these programs so concisely and also talking about the steps borrowers need to take. So like, bravo, because I think you did that in like under like two minutes. So like, that is just incredibly impressive. So um, so just really echoing what you said is so great. But then also, I just want to tie in one more part to what you said about like SCOTUS, I think the Supreme Court. So I think so many people see the Supreme Court decision. And again, I keep saying people feel, you know, very discouraged by it and it said, you know, we were this close to relief and it was kind of like ripped away from you. But I think Benjamin has pointed out a really important thing. There are so many people who can benefit from pub public service loan forgiveness. So many people who can benefit from this income driven repayment account adjustment. And then to Benjamin's point about people who are previously in default before the pandemic getting fresh start. I mean, this keeps people from experiencing wage garnishment, from experiencing, you know, treasury offsets. So people who are getting, um, who are getting like their tax refunds garnished by the government because they were in default. So this is like one really life-changing for people um, in terms of like one getting out of default. But then these other two programs that Benjamin mentioned is it's just so important because there are people who could have zero debt right now. We've seen like hundreds of thousands of public service workers get their debt canceled since October of, um, of last year, 2021, when the Department of Education started this waiver. We've seen people get more credit towards for cancellation that Benjamin was talking about through this income driven repayment account adjustment. And that's especially important for a lot of older borrowers. So we know that there are a lot of people who've been in repayment for more than 20 years. You know, there, so there are people who can actually may not even realize can get their debt fully canceled. And so it's very easy to see the Supreme Court decision and just to, to Benjamin's point, kind of want to throw your hands up in the air, not log into your account, but it's just really important to to see if you're, if you're eligible for these programs and can benefit from them. But again, another kudos to you, though, for, Benjamin, for running through those, because I was like, I'm glad you did it. <laughs> Thanks, Kat, and Thanks for putting a point on it and explaining them a little more in detail than my quick little dash off. Appreciate it. Well, I didn't know, for example, that wages can be garnished for people in, is that if you're in default or potentially in default? In default. Yeah. Yeah, it's important for, for everybody listening to know, I think, that what the consequences of this can be for people. We have a caller on the line with a story about her own student debt. Laura, you're on a public affair. Welcome. I, uh, my, my bro I am 54 years old. My brother is one year younger. We both went to University of Illinois immediately after high school. Um, due to our family situation, we did not get any um, parental assistance, so we both took out loans for approximately $20,000. My brother and I um, both had the same kind of situation. He had one major, I had a different major. He paid all of his loans off in less than eight years, 
at 54, because of some forbearance, because of my income, and because of interest, I now owe $75,000. I've worked with every single program, and I still have not met the qualifications because of moments of forbearance, other things that didn't qualify. And um, I think it's just outrageous how terrible this program is. I've never been able to buy a house. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm closing in on retirement, and my loan's just getting bigger. It started at 20, and now it's 75. That's ridiculous. Uh, Laura, could you stay on the line? Maybe uh, our guest, my guests, ben, Benjamin and Kat, do you have any questions for Laura or or want to respond to that story? Yeah, I can I can jump in real quick. Um, first of all, I'm sorry that that's happened. Um, it's unfortunately not uncommon to hear about balances ballooning like that, especially after periods of forbearance where interest can capitalize at the end of the forbearances. Um, do you know what kind of loan it is? Is it a direct loan or is it a fell loan? Do you know? No, they were um, all of the loans my brother and I had have. I have. He had were um, direct loans. Okay. So, and and who's your current servicer? Do you know? Well, Mohelia. It got transferred to Mohelia uh, within the last eight, six, uh, I don't know, months. Okay. So, a couple of things that I would just. Uh, look into and we, we mentioned both of them already on this call one is that pslf and idr account adjustment you don't need to do mm -hmm. anything for that to apply to your account and that should be hitting your account if the department and mohila are to be believed sometime in the next year hopefully by the end of this or at the beginning of 2024 and depending on how much time you had in forbearance and repayment i don't want to give mm -hmm. any false hope here but it, it could wipe it could add many many years towards forgiveness and possibly even have the whole amount forgiven if you've been in repayment a long time in the yeah, meantime I, I oh sorry go ahead no I, I i certainly hope so because i also the other thing i didn't mention my entire work life has been for not-for-profits and government agencies so I have you applied have, have you applied for public service loan forgiveness before absolutely but i, I haven't met the number of years of, of payments because of periods of forbearance because they well, don't make enough. <laughs> you seem like the exact type of borrower that this account adjustment was was created for for you to benefit from. Okay. And so I really hope you do um, to the tune of all of your 70,000 being gone. Um, the other thing I would look into just in the meantime, right, until that adjustment hits your account, I would look at that repay plan and sign up for an, an income based plan so that the payments that might eventually become due are manageable. But I'm I'm optimistic and uh, hopeful that you will get uh, a lot of time towards forgiveness under the account adjustment. Sorry, Kat, that I just kind of took over. No, there. you said that so beautifully, um, Laura. You can't see this, and I'm just like nodding so aggressively at what Benjamin's saying because, to his point, like he's giving yes, like they're um, so definitely looking to those two programs. And I just also want to echo what Benjamin said at the beginning. Like, I one, I'm, I'm so sorry that this is like again, something that you're continuing to have to, to deal with. And like, again, that's why, you know, we do this work and it's so unfortunate that this is not, that so many people share this experience, but just echo what Benjamin said. And then also if you run, like, if you're just kind of like trying to figure this out and you're like, you know, I know Benjamin mentioned the income driven repayment account adjustment, you know, Benjamin mentioned public service loan forgiveness. If you run into trouble as you try to figure this out, you could reach out to the office of the ombudsman at federal student aid. So when you go to studentaid.gov, you can look up the student loan ombuds 
you know, student loan ombudsman office and you can reach out to them if you have like kind of trouble as you're trying to figure out counting like the months of forbearance, figuring out the status of your loans. Um, that can also be a resource to you if you have questions. But I just really wanted to echo what Benjamin said. You laid that out so, so beautifully. Thank you very much for the call, Laura. And thanks for Thank sharing you your story. Yeah, and thanks for the optimism and suggestions. Take Good care. Good luck. So we hear from Laura there, for example, that she hasn't been able to buy a house as a result of this debt. Uh, what are you hearing from student-owned borrowers these days about the impacts their debt is having on their lives? Both of you interact with borrowers on a regular basis. I'll, I'll turn it to you, Kat, first. Um, it's 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 so unfortunate that there there's such a common thread across stories. Is it's it's so much about you know doing the right things like you know we tell students you know go get a degree go to school it's your pathway to economic mobility that's how you're going to get the right job that's how you're going to be able to get the house but what we've seen is that's just not how student debt is working for people it's literally keeping people in what we call a debt trap the fact that i mean in in, in laura even in sharing her stories we hear so many stories about student loan bars you know who who start off with a amount make payments every single month but only see their balances grow that's not only deeply like um, disheartening as a borrower to see like, I'm doing what I was supposed to do. I went to school, I got the job. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, work to benefit my community and these programs aren't working. My balance is growing. And so we see that a lot. And one of the reasons, and so oftentimes we talk about student loan debt, student loan debt's about who has access to wealth and, and wealth disparity. So we've really literally created by having a debt finance, higher education system, a tier by which if your family doesn't contribute to your college, or even if they do, but cannot fully commit, you know, contribute the entire amount, you have to borrow. And what does that mean? It cuts into wealth building opportunities over your lifetime. So when you graduate school with more debt, that means it's much harder to, to buy a house, um, to, you know, to save for retirement, or even just to be able to save and just, you know, to be able to get by. We hear so many stories about student loan borrowers who just say like, you know, just even being being able to make ends meet with, you know, even on what's considered to be an affordable payment plan is still deeply unaffordable and harder to do. And, and it also we kind of tie in the way that student loan debt exacerbates other disparities in our society. So we know that women hold two thirds of student loan debt and when women are more likely to experience the pay gap and have less pay, it makes student debt that much more unbearable. And we see that predominantly black and Latino students coming from households of, of less wealth, that means the student debt crisis also inhibits those wealth building opportunities even more over their lifetimes. So what we really see is one, um, not only is a system that's supposed to create create opportunity for people and to to broaden that that ladder of economic opportunity and access, actually inhibits it for so many people. And so when we talk about how critical this debt relief plan is, when we're talking about again Benjamin walking through these new programs, when we talk about how important it is for they for them to provide access to relief, it's to make this system work so people aren't stuck in a debt trap their entire lifetimes, you know, so people shouldn't have to, you know, past 20, 25 years still be in repayment. And again, seeing their balances balloon to larger than what they were when they first started. And as you say, this is a, a system, higher education, that's supposed to be about upward mobility, right? Historically, it, uh, especially the funding of public higher education has been about creating that upward mobility, particularly for people who haven't had advantages in our society. And yet, uh, by disinvesting from public higher education, which is something we've been talking a lot about on this show, we're putting the burden on individuals to pay for 
what is essentially a public good, higher education, right? And uh, that system isn't then, as you say, so eloquently, Kat, not, not working the way it was designed to do in terms of creating that upward mobility. Well, we're talking about student debt and the recent Supreme Court decision against the Biden administration debt relief plan here on A Public Affair today. I'm talking with Kat Welbeck, Director of Advocacy at the Student Borrower Protection Center, a nonprofit organization focused on alleviating the burden of student debt, and Benjamin Lee, who's Associate Counsel at Ascendium Education in Madison. We still have time to hear from you. We'd love to hear another story about how student loan debt has impacted you. If you are out there listening, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. It's really only through hearing people's stories that we understand the full impacts of this issue across our society. So thanks again for giving us a call, Laura. Um, we can turn towards the future now, perhaps, and think a little bit about your uh, respective efforts to alleviate student loan debt and make college more accessible. Um, what are both of you advocating for long-term or your respective organizations? Uh, we'll go back to you, Benjamin. What is your organization really working on these days to help work on this issue? Um, our philanthropic funds all sorts of uh, different initiatives that are all about elevating those that sort of uh, need it. So whether that's rural learners, um, prison education programs, that's what our philanthropy is focused on. Um, as far as the student loan program, because part of our company is this guarantor, we're not in a position to really advocate directly to the Department of Education. So I think I would probably on a both personal and professional level, agree with some of the recommendations I am sure that CATS organization is pushing for. Um, a lot of them are just sort of common sense fixes. And two that I want to point out that this administration has already taken care of, which are great and will help prevent stories like Laura's from happening in the future. That repay plan, that new income-driven repayment plan, there is no negative amortization possible under that plan. So if a borrower has a $0 monthly payment, which means it counts as a payment, they don't have to pay anything per month because of their income and family size, no interest will accrue on that loan while they are in that plan. It's incredibly generous and it prevents these sort of ballooning um, balances, which are so, um, so many stories of borrowers, you know, not understanding how they ended up with six figures in debt when they only took out 20,000, which makes sense. Um, the second thing that they've done is they've taken away all interest capitalization, except where it's required by the Higher Education Act. They've done that via regulatory process, negotiated rulemaking, a previous round of it. Um, Interest capitalization is another way that these balances just get way out of control for borrowers, especially when they stack forbearances on top of each other. That's multiple capitalizing events um, kind of compounding. So hopefully going forward, there'll be a lot fewer stories um, like Laura's ideally. Thanks, Benjamin. Kat? Um, just going to start by echoing um, one something Benjamin was saying about programs. Like, So one thing we've been advocating for, like one, we talk about fixing the broken student loan system. One of that has been a a large part of advocating for a lot of these programmatic fixes. So from the public service loan forgiveness program to income driven repayment to programs like Fresh Start. And so too, now a lot of that advocacy is making sure, how do we make sure that like people? So one, Douglas, thank you so much for having us here today and to be able to talk about this and to be able to reach you know a broader audience and talking about these programs and talking about how people can access relief. Uh, but two, because we're advocates, we're like, there's always more work to do. So a lot of the work now is gonna be making sure that 
we continue to push and make sure we see that, you know, President Biden's debt relief plan gets over the finish line. And, and then also just like watching for what the return of repayment looks like, because I think we've we've all kind of emphasized like our, our our shared concern and distress about 43 million people going back into repayment and what that can look like. And so also making sure that, you know, our, our, our agencies, our regulators are also kind of looking at what's going on, making sure borrowers are getting the right information that is happening the way it's supposed to be. Cause like that is, I think one of the things that we're focusing on now. So also, um, which is kind of a segue to the next thing I was going to say is, please continue to share your stories. One, as you enter repayment and potentially encounter struggles, confusion, really lift up your stories. And I really, really appreciate something that um, one, Benjamin, that you said about um, elevating, you know, those who need it. I know you're talking about specific subsets of borrowers, but I think also talking about like elevating the stories of borrowers because anyone, you know, struggling to access this relief, anyone sharing their story. And even Douglas, I think before uh, we jumped into this portion of the segment, you were talking about so much of student debt right now is how we shifted a systemic burden and a systemic failure onto people's shoulders. So we sometimes make people feel as though they have done something wrong. They have failed. They have not done the right thing by having student loan debt. And it's just like, no, this student loan system that was set to create a pathway to opportunity for you has just not worked for so long. And I, so I think also what's so important about people sharing their stories. And again, another shout out to Laura for sharing her story earlier. Anyone else who joins the line and shares today is that that's what gives power to this movement and really being able to say, this is what student debt means. You know, people can talk about avocado toast every day, but it's not. It's people making their student loan payments. People who said, I'm trying to get a, a higher education and this system has not worked the way it's supposed to. And so elevating that story has really shifted this narrative of student debt and helped us understand that this is not about people's individual, you know, people not individually doing the right thing. It's about how our system was not serving people that it was supposed to serve. So continue to share those stories. And then also one thing we're doing next, sorry, one last thing, you know, advocate got to just always throw one more thing into the bucket, but also understanding one of the ways to fix this broken student loan system, in addition to advocating for better programs, advocating for the president to get his cancellation program in, is also how do we talk about re revamping our higher education system? What about pathways and funding for free college, how do we we organize around that? So again, as we see this larger shift in this framework about what is a public investment in higher education is also changing the conversation about how we finance higher education. And again, thank you for letting me go a little bit long. Does. So many things. <laughs> of course. And it's they're all tied together, right? You can't talk about the student loan system without talking about what's happening in higher education more broadly. And, and one thing that always comes to mind, I, I try to bring up that uh, devil's advocate, the voice that says, well, I paid off my student loan. You know, I, I got a loan, I worked hard, worked my way through college, still had to take out a loan, paid it off. Um, why can't all these folks out there pay off their loans? Uh, what's your response to that, Kat? Sure, I mean, we, we get that question all the time, as you can imagine. Um, two, one, a lot of times we get that question from people who went to school when it was much less expensive to go to school because what we've literally seen um in the past like decade or so is that to the point you're talking about earlier douglas is as we've seen under a less investment in higher education we've also seen rising cost of college and household incomes have kind of like stayed the same they're not rising at the same level so not only are households making less money and in terms of like the cost of college. So one, it's just significantly more expensive to go to school now. Where So it's just like, 
paying for you know a seventy thousand dollar education on a on a summer on a summer job is not the same as it was just a generation ago. That's one part, and then two. It's really this argument about just who are who are what are, what are our values and our shared values as a country? Are we able, should we say you know we we didn't do it before, so therefore we should you know forego progress? And so it's saying you know you're right. We should have you know had a, even more investment in public education then. So you also didn't have student debt. But I think saying if we've acknowledged the student loan system is broken. Rising college costs are, are unaffordable for many families. We see that many people still pay on their loans every single month. Many people actually pay, you know, pay their balances off because they balloon. They actually pay more than they originally owed. So if we've acknowledged that we have this deeply flawed and broken system, to acknowledge that and just say, well, we can't fix it because, you know, we didn't fix it sooner. I think that's not all. I don't feel like that's a that's a, a you know a, a a good faith argument in in sense that just because we did it wrong before doesn't mean we we can't get it right now. One more follow up for you, Kat, and then I want to turn back to to Benjamin before we wrap up here. But uh, so much of what you've been describing as a movement is about political will, and you said people sharing their stories creates that political will. Do you think that that political will is what has pushed Biden to be so assertive about this issue? And if that's out there. Uh, does that mean that there's also political will to get Congress to just do it themselves and say, we're going to cancel student debt? From my position in a 501c3, <laughs> I'm going to answer this as fast sure. as I can. Yeah. What I will say is that um, I think here, one, again, talking about storytelling is how we've reframed this narrative. And I think telling the story of 43 million people in in state in in every corner of this country it doesn't matter if you're in a city if you're in a rural community it doesn't matter if you're in a red state or blue state student debt affects people in every single corner and pocket of this country and so i think being able when people share their stories i think it builds that collective power to say that one you're not alone in this in this struggle with student loan debt and two it kind of it brings it brings that that common cause together. So in my best 501c3 argument, I think the more people tell their stories, the more people realize, you know, this is a, a shared and a common experience. I think it really elevates the power and elevates this issue to higher levels. And so I know we've so much work, for example, the public service loan forgiveness request for information, these changes that Benjamin was talking about. Part of it was because more than 50,000, nearly 50,000 people submitted comments to a federal register. I don't know how much people are just like, you know, spending their free time giving um, comments on, on um, the federal register. That's deep, that's very uncommon. And so it was very clear this was an issue that was important to people. And this administration said, we want to hear from people. And they did. They looked at their voices and we got change. And so um, as best I can <laughs> without yeah. towing the line is, yes, please continue to share your stories. Yeah, and that's a that's a hopeful message, Benjamin. You're here in Wisconsin. Um, do you want to give us a sense of uh, the local lay of the land with this issue? What are you hearing from folks here in Wisconsin right now about their concerns in particular, or are there any particular Wisconsin angles on the broader uh, student loan debt crisis that you'd like to share? Yeah, I you know I don't think that what anything going on in Wisconsin is at least for federal student loans is unique to Wisconsin borrowers. I think we hear um, versions and iterations of the same sort of narratives over and over. And Kat was absolutely right. I mean, the conversation on student loans has moved a ton in a very short amount of time, 
And it's it's really just about people sharing their stories, um, recognizing that there are these common threads and narratives that a lot of us share. Um, and so the webinars and the sort of outreach stuff that I've been doing, um, I can ahead of time, I know the answers to most of these questions, not because I'm really smart, but because I've answered them before. The borrowers have the same fears, the same questions, the same misunderstandings. And it's just a question of getting those ironed out. Um, but we can only do that when people speak up and share their stories and are willing to sort of engage with a system that isn't perfect. Any resources you want to highlight here for us as we wrap up, Benjamin? Yeah, so there's a website, debtsmarts.org. That is the home of the Wisconsin Coalition on Student Debt, which is a nonpartisan um, nonprofit that I'm a member of. And it's just organizations, including government entities in Wisconsin, that are all about resources for student loan borrowers, both actual and potential student loan borrowers. So people just get, you know, heading to school for the first time. Lots of good resources there. Otherwise, studentaid.gov, that's the federal website that everyone should be familiar with. Any resources you would add, Kat? Um, one, I think that's so incredible, like Benjamin, to offer one state-specific resources, because that's something when we do this broader work to for borrowers in Wisconsin to have it, like that's absolutely incredible because there's so many times people just really need like state-specific resources or programs that can actually help them for being a resident. So that's incredible. Um, definitely want to echo studentaid.gov. Um, also at the Student Borrower Protection Center, we have a website called cancelmystudentdebt.org that also provides some updates and resources on many of the programs that we we talked about today that kind of walk through the steps of how do I access public service loan forgiveness? What things do I need to know about income-driven repayment? So um, that's also an additional resource that we have. Thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there. Today, we'll link all those resources in the web post. You've been listening to A Public Affair. My name is Douglas Haynes. I've been talking today with Kat Welbeck, Director of Advocacy at the Student Borrower Protection Center. Thanks again, Kat. Thank you. So happy to be here. And I've been joined by Benjamin Lee, Associate Counsel at Ascendium Education. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Douglas. And thank you, Kat, for sharing the mic with me. And I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Isiri Ramos, news director Shali Pittman, and thank you listeners for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. On today's show, David Ahrens talks with Krista Brun, author of Crossing Borders, The Search for Dignity in Palestine. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Six foot six, I'm up sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six, I'm up sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six, I'm up sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six, I'm up sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level.